so Jamie's got 1,375 friends, and she has a rule that she doesn't add people unless she knows them. So how, what percentage of those people do you think you would seriously go for coffee with? Like all 1,375? Oh my goodness. That's incredible. In first service, there was someone that had seven, over 700 friends, and they, uh, they estimated they'd probably only go for coffee with about 5% of them. Um, yeah. You clearly have amazing friends. I'm going to go with my first person example because it helps me better. But <laughs> you might be that weird, that you know, exceptional freak that can actually have a relationship with 1,375 people. But for us normal human beings, <laughs> that's incredibly difficult to keep up that amount of relational connection. And. Uh, would, oh, you would go for coffee with them. Yeah. I met them once, and they were awesome. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Gotcha. But yeah, probably drastically less. Drastically less. Okay. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks for playing along, everybody. But I think it's worth a good... It's a good question to ask is, do the... The amount of followers, the amount of friends we have, let's use Facebook for example, the amount of friends, is that indicative of the depth of those relationships or the amount you're actually connected with other human beings? I think most of us, um, unless you have a smaller amount of friends on Facebook, not in real life, uh, would say, not really. That we, we could probably name you know, 30 people or less that would be in our sphere of close relationships that we might you know, go out for lunch with regularly or have a coffee with or connect with. But yet, in our virtual world, we have all this network of relationship. You get to pick and choose who your friends are going to be. You actually can pick and choose what information from your friends that you want to receive. You know, when somebody sends you this message, this is confession time, how many of you guys don't open the message because it says read because you don't want them to know that you read it because then there's pressure to actually respond to it. Anybody? You know what I'm talking about. You get to pick and choose when you want to respond to somebody, when you don't. Oh, that's not convenient for me right now. I don't have time for this block. You know, don't want to see that person's feed. And we create this world that is tailored specifically to our needs, our world, what we feel like, what we don't. I think it would make sense that that mentality has an effect on our real-life relationships. Because in real life, it's not that convenient. In real life, you don't just get to respond to people when you want. You don't get to just turn off the feed when you don't want to hear it anymore. Sorry, Mom. Click. I'm out. So... I'm not talking about my mom specifically. Sorry, mom. Uh, that it wasn't, it wasn't against you. I, I want to begin this morning by reading something from C.S. Lewis out of a book that he wrote called The Great Divorce. Uh, so there's a, there's a few ideas I'm, I'm going to bring in and just stay with me because you know, we'll bring them together eventually. But uh, C.S. Lewis, he wrote this book called The Great Divorce. It's a book about heaven and hell. And uh, the, most of the book talks about heaven, but as, uh, as they talk about heaven, you also get C.S. Lewis's, some of his ideas around hell 
And it's a fictional book, and so he's not claiming that this is reality, but he's dealing with some concepts here uh, that I think are quite powerful. And so I'm going to read a few paragraphs from uh, chapter 2 while the people in the story are currently in hell and they're going to take a bus and go check out heaven. So it says, uh, It seems the deuce of a town I volunteered, and that's what I can't understand. The parts of it that I saw were so empty. Was there once a much larger population? Not at all, said my neighbor. The trouble is that they're so quarrelsome. As soon as anyone arrives, he settles in some street. Before he's been there 24 hours, he quarrels with his neighbor. Before the week is over, he's quarreled so badly that he decides to move. Very likely, he finds the next street empty because all the people there have quarreled with their neighbors and moved. If so, he settles in. If by any chance the street is full, he goes further. But even if he stays, it makes no odds. He's sure to have another quarrel pretty soon, and then he'll move on again. Finally, he'll move right out on the edge of the town and build a new house. You see, it's easy here. You've only got to think a house, and there it is. That's how the town keeps growing. And further on it says, There's a bit of rising ground near where I live, and a chap has a telescope. You can see the lights of the inhabited houses where those old ones live, millions and millions of miles away. Millions of miles from us and from one another. Every now and then they move further still. That's one of the disappointments. I thought you'd meet interesting historical characters here, but you don't. They're all too far away. And then later, what's the trouble about this place? Not that people are quarrelsome. That's only human nature and was always the same even on earth. The trouble is they have no needs. You get everything you want by just imagining it. That's why it never costs any trouble to move to another street or building another house. In other words, there's no proper economic basis for any community life. If they needed real shops, chaps would have to stay near where the real shops were. If they needed real houses, they'd have to stay near where builders were. It's scarcity that enables a society to exist. So the idea here that C.S. Lewis is getting at is that in this picture of hell he's creating, people actually get whatever they want. But because of our human nature, we want something that doesn't cost us anything. And so people, don't, people can imagine something and then it just exists. They can imagine a new house and it happens. And so over time, as quarrels happen, people move further and further apart because they don't want to be near each other. Because it's too messy, it's too hard, it costs too much. And people even live millions of miles apart, and millions of miles is still too close. I can't help but hear echoes of our current, you know, virtual ideas of relationship and social network as I read this, that that we get what we want, we create these worlds, these relationships, and we only interact with what we choose to and what we want to. We only respond to people when we want to. But all of us know that real relationships in real life doesn't work that way. We filter ourselves and what we put out. You know, we talked about this the first week in the selfie talk. We, we, we choose what to project. And then with others, we only accept the friends we want and we only receive the info we want. And Einstein said, I fear the day that technology will surpass our human interaction. The world will have a generation of idiots. 
And we can look at that and say, well, that's crazy, that's sad. Um, but do we often have that thought with one another that, you know what, I don't need you anymore. I actually realize I can communicate online. I can text you, send you a message if I want to. I can go to church. I just open up my internet browser, go into sunwestchurch.com, and hey, there's the sermons right there. I don't even need to go to church in the physical person. And in fact, I'm tired of these lame sermons. There, I found that there's way better sermons online, and I can listen to a whole swath of amazing sermons by amazing pastors. And we can do that, and we do do that. I don't need you anymore. And what's the value of messy, real, face-to-face relationship? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It talks about this in Genesis. And in Genesis 1.27, it says that God created us in his image. You guys heard that before? God created us in his image, yeah? Powerful statement. Um, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, just there's so much mystery and intrigue in it for me. The verse before it, Genesis 1, verse 26, it says, uh, you know, God's talking. It says, let us make man in our image. Theologians for centuries have debated on what that means. And obviously, if you know, Jewish theologians and Christian theologians would interpret that differently. But, but Christians historically have said that that us, that our, is God expressing the reality of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That God has always been three in one. That since the beginning, there's been this circle of relationship, of generosity, of this giving and receiving, and the, the Father communing with the Son, communing with the Spirit, and communing with the Father, and this, this beautiful communal relationship within the one uh, idea of God, the one being of God. And even to make that clear, in, in 126, it says, let us make man in our image, and then in the next verse it says, God made man in his image. It is in that image that we're made, this communal image, not an individualistic image. You know, in 1 Peter 2, verse 9 to 10, it says, But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. At the beginning there, it says, you are a chosen people. And later it says, for he called you. That, that you is second person plural. Not he called you as an individual. He called you as a community. You are a chosen people. That's a, that's a collective singular. It's you are a people, a singular people, but you're made up of individuals. That God created us in his image, that we were created to be a social network. We were created to be in relationship with each other. And when we respond to God, we respond as individuals. But the moment you respond, you become part of God's people. And throughout Scripture, God's calling a people. He's interested in nations. He's interested in the cosmos. He's interested in the big picture, not simply us as individuals. And we can talk about, we can use this individualistic, individualistic type language, but which reinforces some of these ideas. You know, God created you, and God loves you, and God died for you, and God saved you, and God wants you to be in heaven with him. And all those things are very true, but it's not the whole truth. It tailors towards this individualism we have in our culture that it's all about you and me. And even God himself 
revolves around you and me. The truth is that God's calling a people. And if you're going to respond to God's call, you don't get to choose whether you're part of the people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He wrote a powerful book called Life Together about community. Um, and and I, I just find this, this idea uh, powerful. He says, who, He who loves his dream of community more than Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands. He sets up his own law, and he judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal, of picture, when his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first the accuser of his brethren, then the accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. That he, this idea that he, if you and I love our dream of community more than we actually love community, we'll end up being disappointed. If we have a certain dream or vision of what it ought to look like, Dietrich Bonhoeffer breaks it down that we'll start to point fingers at other people of why this community isn't the way it ought to be. It's because of you and you and you, and if you'd only fix this and this and do this, then it would be a much better place. And over time, he starts to point the fingers at God. God, what are you doing? What were you thinking? Does God even really exist anymore? And then eventually we begin to point the fingers at ourselves. What's wrong with me? And maybe you're in the place in one, in, in, at some point in that spectrum where you're pointing the finger at others, you're pointing the finger at God, you're looking in the mirror and you're saying, what's wrong? And maybe it's because you had an idealistic view or vision of community that you thought ought to be, and then you started interacting with real people in the real mess, and it was nothing like you thought it should be. And so what happens is we leave. We move out. We disengage. In fact, in Hebrews 10, you know, Paul talks about, he says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. Why do people neglect meeting together? It's because it gets too hard and messy to stay together. You know, I was a messy, messy, dirty young adult. I mean dirty in the literal sense, not like the other sense. I was, I was a messy person. You know, my wife could attest to this. She, she knew me in that time. Um, you know, when I went to Bible college, I forgot a blanket. Uh, I forgot my sheets. I forgot my pillow. Uh, and, you know, as I'm telling the story, I'm like, why am I telling the story? But it just... I'm sure there's a good reason. <laughs> you know, I, the first, my first semester of Bible school, I had to sleep on this mattress that had been slept on by other Bible school boys for years, perhaps decades. 
and I just use my jacket as my pillow. Uh, and uh, that's just a microcosmic picture of just the type of messiness that surrounded me in that period of my life. And my floors were messy, like you would open the, the door to my room and you'd have to jump from the door to my bed because I just, you know, there's stuff everywhere. And I had a roommate, bless his soul, his name was Dennis. Dennis Dick. The Dick room. Dick with an eye, so it's too bad for him. Um, <laughs> the, I, did, I felt bad for Dennis because Dennis lived with me and he didn't have a choice in the matter. He just signed up for school and he was assigned to me. We didn't know each other before that point. It's like, hey, here's your dirty, messy roommate that you have to live with for this year. I was like, oh, great. But something amazing happened. At the end of first year, when you go back for second year, you can decide, um, which most people do, to live on your own. Get your own room. Dennis and I actually chose to live together for second year when we didn't have to. And then we went back for third year, and we chose to live together for a third year. He actually just eventually quit after, uh, when it came to second semester of third year. But for two and a half years, Dennis lived in this close quarters with me. Like you were li literally sleeping five feet from each other. And it was messy, literally, but also figuratively. But there was obviously some kind of value, some kind of sharpening, some kind of camaraderie that came out of that relationship that became valuable enough for us to continue to choose to be together, even when he had to live with my mess. Is it possible that when we move away from the mess of community, that we are giving up on a God-given gift? We're giving up on one of the things that is actually intended to shape us into the likeness of God. I want to share a story from the Old Testament with you this morning. And it's a story that spans 15 chapters. Don't worry, we're not going to read it all. Um, it's the longest narrative in Scripture. But I think it, it brings out some valuable insights. It's the story of David and Saul and David and Jonathan. And uh, just to give a, a quick background to the story, you know, David was anointed by Samuel to be king. We actually talked about that a, a few weeks ago. David kills Goliath, and Israel defeats the Philistines after David kills Goliath. David wasn't even a soldier, just a boy at the time, but he goes and kills Goliath. And because he does that, David's name becomes, starts to become famous. People start to know who David is. So David was brought, after he killed Goliath, to meet Saul the king. So he meets Saul, and as he's there meeting Saul, he actually meets Jonathan, which is Saul's son. There's an immediate bond between the two of them. It says in 1 Samuel 18.1, and it says that Jonathan loved David. And so they decide they're going to be BFFs. They're going to be friends. And like any friends do, to, to make this friendship packed, Jonathan takes off his clothes and makes the pack. That's, I guess, what you did back then. It says he takes off his robe to seal the pack. That's what, um, it's so much easier now than it was then. Just, you know, accept, yeah, we can be friends. Uh, but we don't have to take off our clothes. Uh, so they become friends. They become more than friends. They become best friends. As this, as this relationship is developing, David's also getting to know Saul and Saul David, and David's fame is growing 
And Saul becomes jealous of David. There's this song that people would chant that Saul's killed his thousands and David's killed his ten thousands. And as the fame of David grew, the jealousy of Saul grew. And so there was one day where David was playing harp and Saul was sitting there and he was so jealous and angry he actually threw a spear at David trying to kill David. David fleed. So Saul kind of moved David out, you know, put him in charge of a thousand men, got him involved in the army. I think part of the thinking was maybe David would die if he was out there on the battlefield. But David actually had success in everything he did, and the Lord was with him. And it said Israel loved him because of that success. So Saul's anger, his jealousy kept growing, and he had plans to kill David. You know, one of his plans was, you know, if I can convince David to marry one of my daughters. Uh, in that time, if he were going to marry, you know, someone's daughter, you had to do something for the dad, and then he would give him this outrageous claim, uh, or this outrageous ask that David couldn't fulfill. And, uh, and so David agrees, yeah, I'll marry one of your daughters. And uh, he's told, well, if you want to marry her, you have to bring me a hundred Philistine foreskins. True. It's in the Bible. It's... And it says that David was actually excited about this. Um, so he, it's like, sure, no problem. And Saul's thinking, yeah, David's going to go. He's going to die in battle as he's trying to do this. Um, yeah, I'll, my mind just went a few places. I don't think I, I should go there. But uh, I distracted myself. So David actually brings back 200 Philistine foreskins. Yeah, overachiever. <laughs> so Saul says, okay, you can marry my daughter. So he marries his daughter. And then there comes another point where David's playing harp again, and Saul again tries to kill David with the spear. And this time David runs, he's like, okay, I'm, I'm convinced. He goes to Jonathan, he says, Jonathan, I'm convinced that your dad wants to kill me. Jonathan says, no, no, my dad doesn't want to kill you. He's not that bad of a guy. And so they make up this plan. They're like, I want to prove to you that your dad wants to kill me. Uh, so you go to the festival that's happening tomorrow. Tell your dad that I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be out here in the field hiding. And if your dad, when he finds out that I'm not there, if he's like, no problem, then we know that me and your dad are good. But if you go there and, you find, and he finds out that I'm not going to be there, he gets all angry and upset, then you know that he actually does want to kill me. And so let's create kind of this code, you know, because boys like codes. Uh, when you come back, you're going to bring some arrows and a bow, and you're going to shoot the bow, and you're going to bring a boy to collect the, the arrows. And you're going to say to the boy, um, no, the arrows are on this side of you, and if you say that, then I know that everything's good and I'm safe. If you shoot the bow and you tell the boy, the arrows are beyond you, then I know that it's not good, and I got to leave and I got to flee. It's like, okay, deal. So David, or Jonathan goes, goes to the festival, sits down with Saul. Saul eventually asks, you know, where's David? Yeah, and Jonathan says, well, David went back to be with his family. Saul got angry. And... Uh, and this is what Saul says. Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan. You stupid son of a whore. He swore at him. Yeah, this is in the Bible. I know it's not, uh, it's not maybe family friendly, but he swore at him. Do you think I don't know that you want him to be king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? 
Who was heir to the throne? Jonathan. So it's interesting, the, you know, the author brings this out. Do you not know that I, I know that you want him to be king in your place? As long as that son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. Now go and get him so I can kill him. And then Jonathan questioned his father Saul, but Saul ended up throwing the spear at Jonathan trying to kill his own son. David goes out the next morning with the boy. You know, they do their code. He tells the boy to run ahead, you know, go ahead as I'm shooting the arrows. And, you know, even as I'm reading, I was like, that's like archery 101. You don't run onto the field as you're shooting the arrows, right? Everybody knows that. Maybe they didn't go to camp when he was a kid. But anyways, he, he shoots the arrows as the kid's running. He doesn't hit the kid. Um, and then he says to the kid, go beyond you. Or the arrows are still beyond you, which was their code for everything's not good, David. You got to flee. So then he tells the kid with the arrows to go home. And then David comes out from hiding and him and Jonathan talk, and Jonathan says, it's not safe for you to go home. And I, I'm, I'm reading this wondering, like, what's the whole point of the code? <laughs> Are you guys following me? Like, what's the point of the code? You, you set up this elaborate plan, and then when it's all done, it's like, well, that was a cool plan. Now let's get, get together and talk, and it's not safe for you. I thought that's why you set up the arrow thing with the kid and all that. You just, you just ruined it, Jonathan. You just ruined it. <laughs> So they come together and they embrace each other because, and the, they were crying together and they said goodbye. David escapes. And for the next number of chapters, David is running around in the wilderness uh, from Paul and, or from Saul. And Saul goes out a number of times trying to kill David. There's two times where David actually has Saul in his vicinity that he could kill him. Saul was unaware and once in the cave, once in a tent. And both times, David refused to kill Saul, even though Saul was trying to kill David. There also comes this point in the story where David feels alone. There's a bunch of guys that have gathered around him. There's about 400 other guys that are, you know, wounded, alone, isolated, and they gather around David. But David feels alone in the midst of that. There's a bunch of details that I won't, won't get into. But as he feels alone, it says that David went away and strengthens himself in the Lord. And I'll come back to that in a second. Eventually, Saul and goes into battle and decides that he's going to take his own life and falls on his own sword. And David and Jonathan both died in that same battle. Anyways, it's a long story. You can read it in 1 Samuel. Uh, but what's the point? What does this have to do with what we were talking about? I think that the story of David and Jonathan and David and Saul is a profound story as we think about relationships. Saul was only interested in his own vision and dream, his own kingdom. And everybody around him served that dream. He felt threatened when his kingdom, with, at the idea of his kingdom being taken from him. He, he killed many people. He actually goes on to kill a number of uh, priests because he's convinced that God's priests, you know, there's like 60-some priests, I think, uh, were involved in this conspiracy to take the kingdom from him, and so he killed them all. He tried to kill his own son. That anything that threatened his kingdom, his dream, his vision became his enemy. 
Meanwhile, Jonathan, who was the rightful heir to the throne, recognizes that this life is about more than him. That God is doing something, that God's anointed his friend David, and he's going to move aside because he cares more about the interests of God and the interests of his friend David than he does about his own interests. That he gives up his throne, his kingdom, willingly for his friend because he loves his friend as he loves himself. And really, it's a simple question. Is, are you more like Saul or are you more like Jonathan? Do you have this vision, this kingdom that you're trying to build, that your expectation is your friends and your family all have a role to play in that? And when they're not playing the roles, when they're not doing what you like, you actually wound them or hurt them or push them away because it doesn't work with your vision or your dream? Or are you more like Jonathan? You've been captivated by this by God's dream, by God's kingdom, that you actually love your friends, your family members, as you love yourself, and you're willing to get off the throne for the benefit of somebody else. You're willing to lay aside your own rights because God has something much bigger in store than your own little kingdom. And on top of that, are the people around you more like Jonathan? Are they more like Saul? Do you feel like you're constantly the collateral damage of a family member or a friend or somebody else that is really interested in building their own kingdom. And when you don't fall in line, you get the brunt of it. Or have you actually found Jonathans in your life that are more concerned with God's kingdom than their own? And because of that, they can love you as they love themselves. They're not only interested in their own self-interest, they're also interested in you, in your world, in your life. In Bonhoeffer, in his book, he, he also talks about the ability to be alone. Um, and th- these are all connected, so just stay with me here. But he, talk, he, he says that if we can't learn to be alone, we can't become a healthy member of a community. And what's he saying? I think when David was alone in the wilderness, you know, he had 400 people gather around him and there was a sense of community there. It was a, they were all wounded and isolated people. You know, maybe a good picture of the church. Wounded and isolated people that, you know, have rallied around each other. And when things seemed dire, when, uh, you know, David wanted just to give up, and a lot of the Psalms he kind of wrote in this period, so as you're reading the Psalms, you kind of get an insight into how David was thinking and how he was feeling. You know, lots of stress, lots of fear, lots of um, doubt. But it says that David went and strengthened himself in the Lord. And when you and I have our identities based in God, when we, be, when we can actually be alone with God, when we recognize that Jesus is enough, we can be healthy, participating members in a community. Not because we're fixed, but because we realize that the community isn't intended to fix us. 
which actually frees us from putting this dream or this expectation on others that they can't deliver on. When we realize that God is the only one that can actually heal me, can make me whole, that, that God is the one I was created to be in relationship with, that is when we're freed to allow other people to be broken and wounded just like us. That's what allowed David to be the leader of all these, these group of you know, misfits because he didn't have an expectation on them that was only deserved for God. Are you Saul or are you Jonathan? Do you have Saul's around and do you have Jonathan's around you? And are you able to strengthen yourself in the Lord? Are you able to free up the people around you, your family members, your friends, your small group from being God because they were never intended to be? Find that, that source of strength and encouragement from God alone. Because when we come to God as individuals, as we were saying earlier, when we come to God as individuals, we don't continue to be individuals. We, be, we, we become part of a collective singular. We become part of a community. And that community is actually the way that God continues, one of the ways that God continues to refine us and build us and shape us into his image as a communal triune God. I'm going to invite you to stand. The worship team is going to come up and they'll lead us in a closing song. Um, you know, Sun West, we, we do Sunday mornings. Obviously, you're here. And if you come on Sundays week after week, we believe that's important. We believe being together to worship God is important. To be being a part of something bigger than ourselves is important. But your transformation on a Sunday morning versus being involved in a messy community, you know, those, if you were to compare, the transformation levels are not even close. And it's our hope and prayer that as we gather on Sundays, what we have is small groups of people that are doing life together, coming together into the whole to worship together. That we're small groups gathered. We're not a bunch of individuals that just come together on a Sunday. And small groups are hard and small groups are messy and, you know, maybe you don't like somebody, maybe they talk too much. Maybe you feel isolated because somebody's not in the same demographic as you and, you know, your kids don't get along. You know, like there's all sorts of stuff, right? And, uh, and it's easy for us to run away from those small groups in that community just saying, it's not quite ideal. You know, it's not exactly what I was looking for. But I want you to know that when you turn away from that, those hard things, from those small groups, um, and don't get me wrong, I know there's time to transition those small, small groups, that's not what I'm saying. But if you're not involved in an ongoing small group, you're missing a powerful part of what it means to be part of the people of God. You're missing a powerful avenue that God instituted to help shape us to being more like him. And if you're feeling stuck and you're just attending every week, we're glad you're attending, but we would encourage you to take this next step to get involved in a ministry team, to get involved in a small group and say, I'm okay to embrace a little bit of messy in my life. I'm okay to take on some of this discomfort. You know, I'm okay to be the Dennis Dick to Matt Dick. 
Because for whatever reason, I believe there's something valuable there that I don't want to miss out on. So even as we worship, I just invite you to ask God what that means for you, what it means to become a Jonathan more than a Saul. You know, we're always a mix of both, but what does it mean for you to become a Jonathan more than a Saul, to have those Jonathans around you and, instead of Saul's? And what does it mean to be strengthened in the Lord, which is going to free up other people to be themselves and to be messy too? If you feel this tug on your heart to embrace the messy in a way that you haven't yet or you haven't in a while, um, I would encourage you to consider you know, getting involved in some serving teams at least, um, but even better to getting involved in a, a home group or small group. Um, and sometimes that just that takes a bit and that's part of the messiness of figuring that out and uh, just be be patient as we work that out but we're committed to finding places of community uh, for everyone that wants to call SunWest home and uh, if you're in that place I would just encourage you to either email info at sunwestchurch.com or you can let somebody know at the info center and they can take down your name uh, but we won't we just believe that that's part of where we get changed and transformed the most that we allow other people to speak truth and to be the hands and feet and voice of Jesus in our lives, to be the Jonathans that love us as they love themselves, to be involved in a community that takes and receives, that really echoes what God himself is like.